Let's grab those Bibles and start making our way to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. As you do, we'll start to talk a little bit about what we read earlier this morning, about this weird comment that Jesus makes about Christians bearing fruit, Christians being fruitful. What, what is this? Well, to bear fruit is to give evidence of our Christian life. It's to give evidence of our spiritual life. It's to show the world. It's to prove. It's to showcase that we are this new creation that the gospel tells us that we are once we put our faith in Christ for salvation. So where there was once no life, now there is spiritual life and light because of God's love and grace, because of this gift of mercy that he offers to us through the gospel. One of the most notable places where Jesus talks and speaks of fruitfulness is what I read to you this morning, John 15. Again, just a few verses from that. Jesus says, every branch in me that doesn't bear fruit, he takes away. Every branch that does, he prunes so that it may bear more fruit. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch can't bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. Verse 8 of John 15, my father's glorified by this that you bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Further on down, we didn't read it, but verse 16, Jesus says, You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit. So what is this fruit? What is this evidence that we're supposed to be showing? And although not really the point of our sermon this morning, but we could identify a few categories. It's you bear fruit when you obey God's word. That would be a, a very large category that I would place over this. It's the fruit of obedience. You bear fruit when you desire to, to read his word and, and apply it, try to do what his word instructs us to do. You bear fruit when you demonstrate Christ's work in your life. Galatians 5 sort of helps us to understand the the differences there of who we used to be and who we are now, sort of this war that's going on, the desires of the flesh versus the fruit of the spirit. So there's that word fruit showing up again. So you could simply identify fruit as when you live demonstrating God's fruit in your life. You're bearing fruit when you live lovingly, joyfully, and peacefully. Instead of the old works of the flesh that really only care about you and really have nothing, no concern for anyone else, you bear fruit that way. You could think of evangelizing, sharing the gospel with a family member or a friend. That's bearing fruit. You could identify fruit as serving the Lord at your church with spiritual gift that he's given you, even in junior high, you can bear fruit by looking for ways to serve and help out at your church. So anything that's evidence of this spiritual life that's yours now because of the gospel, that falls under this category of fruit. Fruit is 
It's obedience. It's, it's living the way God expects and calls us to live. And there are so many ways that we could bear fruit and demonstrate this reality of our Christian life. But for the Christian, there are two really simple and obvious ways where you can begin to demonstrate who you are in Christ. These should be automatic for the Christian. And we started to talk about these two weeks ago. Two things, two commands that Jesus gives to every Christian. Two actions to put into practice right away. Two ordinances that Jesus left for his disciples to do. And and then obviously expecting everyone to follow after them. As the church would grow and as time would progress. These are ordinances that Jesus expects all Christians to do. These two Commands are baptism and communion. And obeying these commands, you guys, are the easiest way to begin to bear fruit in your Christian life. What did Jesus say from John 15? My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Well, it should begin right here with these two commands these two ordinances that Jesus says, this is what you need to do, Christian. Baptism is a great opportunity for you to begin to obey Christ and to follow him. We, we covered that two Wednesdays ago. If you missed that, you can go back and listen to that sermon on baptism. But certainly, if, if you're here this morning, you have questions about baptism, you could talk to myself or Dr. Scott or your small group leader. We'd love to help you answer those questions that you might be having about Should I get baptized? What is that? What's that for? But this morning, I want to talk about the other command that Jesus left for us, this other opportunity that you have as a Christian to begin to bear fruit right away. And that's through communion, taking communion, observing the Lord's table. Just like with baptism, There's a lot of confusion when it comes to communion. Um, There's not quite as many funny like communion fails as there are for baptism. I know you enjoyed that last week and are probably hoping for another play-by-play like we talked about. But with communion, even still, there's a lot of uncertainty. What is it? What are we supposed to be doing? Churches practice it so differently. And it, I think, naturally leads to some confusion for young believers, what, what is communion all about? Is it a pre-lunch snack? How many crackers am I allowed to take when that plate passes by? Is it handful? I just need some clarity. Some churches actually serve bread loaves, and you're supposed to tear off a piece of that loaf and just keep on passing it. Some churches have really large crackers that they serve. What's the deal? What, what's right? What's wrong? What is it supposed to be? I even perused uh, an article. Obviously, this was a, a youth pastor sort of driving this one, but he suggested that communion could be observed with Doritos and Mountain Dew. I'm assuming you would all be in favor for that. But what is that? Is that communion? What's it for? What are we supposed to be doing? What's communion all about? Well, here's how our church defines communion. 
right off the website. Here's a helpful sort of place for us to get started, and then we'll break this down. Our church says this, we teach that the Lord's Supper, that's what we call communion, is the commemoration and proclamation of Jesus' death until he returns. It should always be preceded by solemn self-examination. We also teach that whereas the elements of communion are only representative of the flesh and blood of Christ, Lord's Supper is nevertheless an actual communion with the risen Christ who indwells every believer. And so is presently fellowshipping with his people. So where does that definition come from? How do we get there? How did we land on that? And there's a passage that's helpful for us this morning. I hope you're there. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 17. In Corinthians, especially this first letter, Paul was had a lot to say to this church, to these Christians. There was a lot of things that they were doing fairly well, but there was a lot of stuff that they were really messing up. And one of them was communion. One of the things that they weren't really doing right is right here in chapter 11, verse 17, they were making a mess of the Lord's Supper, of, of communion. Here's what Paul writes, verse 17. But in the following instructions, I do not commend you because when you come together, it's not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another's getting drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. In remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. Communion. Um, everybody had seen a, a communion service here at Grace Church? We just had one last Sunday. The deacons are all up front in those first few rows and 
They sort of look like secret servicemen distributing the elements, and they do that, and they pass the first that plate of of the the bread, those little tiny crackers, which under normal circumstances are not difficult to to grab, but when it's a lot of pressure to get it and pass that plate, it's like I cannot grab this tiny cracker. Help me, someone, please help me. Uh, and then they pass the the tray of the little cups of juice which I think we're all wondering who's going to be the first person to drop that on themselves and make a huge mess. In the history of communion, I'm not sure if it's happened here. It's, it's, I mean, I think statistically it's had to have happened, but uh, somehow it, it continues to, to go on. What's going on in that service? You guys are there. You, you see that. What's happening there? Well, we pass the bread and the cup. Like Paul instructs here, we do it because like baptism, Jesus tells us to do it. If you weren't here for our message on baptism, you would have heard me say that that baptism, like communion, it's a sign and a picture pointing to something else. It's, It's actually pointing not to you, but to Jesus. Communion is a picture pointing to Christ. It's a physical picture of the death and sacrifice of Christ. That's the picture. Again, it's, it's not a, a about you. This is about Jesus, his death and his sacrifice. But there's a reason for us to do this and to do this as a church. Let's start with that. First uh, Corinthians 11 teaches us, number one, communion is for Christians. Communion is for Christians. I think you can see there, and you heard me just read it, verse 18, Paul had a problem with their communion practice. But he said, when you come together as a church, Paul says, as a church, you're messing this up. Corinthians, this is not a meal, and you need to wait for each other. It's not a picnic or a potluck. You guys are are doing this wrong. You're coming together as if it's a feast, And it's also not a place for social priority. Who goes first? Who goes last? Oops, there's not enough left for you. Sorry, maybe next time. None of that. Come together as a church. And I want to say that doesn't mean this is for everybody who goes to church. Paul is specifically identifying and talking to Christians, to believers. And that's where we have to start. Communion is for believers. It's for the church. It's not something for unbelievers to partake in. It's not something you should do if you aren't following Christ. And we'll talk about that a little bit more in a minute. But the normal practice begins with this. It's, it's for Christians. It's for the church. Really important to start there. Number two, communion should reflect Jesus' intention. Communion should reflect Jesus in tension. Paul writes to the Corinthians here about the Passover night where Jesus gave this ordinance. You can find it in Matthew and Mark and Luke. It's the same, it's the same set of events, but Jesus is setting the example. He sets the standard for what communion is supposed to be. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of of him. That's what Paul writes here in verse 24. And Paul adds in verse 26, when the church does this, it's proclaiming Jesus' death until he comes back. So there's this element of bread 
and this element of, of, of fruit from the vine. Nothing here about what kind of bread to use. Nothing here about how to cut it. There's no guidelines about how small. We could actually go smaller than the crackers that we use and it would still count. You could go bigger, but the point is it needs to be bread. Nothing about the cup except, again, Jesus refers to it as fruit of the vine, Matthew 26, 29. That's where he describes what's in the cup as something from the vine, fruit of the vine. And that's, that's why we use juice. So it has to be bread and it needs to be juice of some kind. Can't be too insistent on what kind. But already we see that, you know, Mountain Dew and Cheez-Its is a bad idea, right? We need to use what Jesus instructs us to use. It would be unbiblical to do something else. What else does... Jesus intend for us. If you were here last week, again, we had communion. And when those lights go down, you get the feeling that this is something serious. Something different is is happening, but this is still a, a public act of worship. It's still intended to be for everyone who's there. There's nothing weird happening, nothing to be ashamed of, no dark rooms and basements. It's not some strange cult practice Uh, There's no like scary ceremony, nothing shady happening. That's not what it is. It's meant to be observed by outsiders and we want it to be. Let me say it this way. It's not about privacy. It's about the picture. It's, It's about the one it proclaims. So unbelievers are meant to observe it. We want them to to be reminded of what this is a picture of, that this is about the sacrifice that Jesus made. But our church, as it should, takes it very seriously. It's meant to be taken seriously. It's not a time to joke around. It's very weighty, and we need to take it seriously. Why? Because of what Jesus intended communion to involve. It's meant to be a time to remember him. It's meant to be a time where you intentionally remember him. So it's for Christians. It should involve bread and juice. It's a time that's meant to be serious. And it's a time to remember what Christ did, especially as we think about the cross. We do it to remember. You see that in verse 24. You see it in verse 25. Jesus wants us to remember what he did for us. That's the whole point. One pastor says it this way. We're to consciously call to mind the person of Jesus as he once lived and the work of Jesus as he once died and rose again. Especially as we think about what that work means in regards to our forgiveness. Jesus died on the cross for us. So that's what we're to remember. It's not some mystical moment. It's not some moment where I'm going to get some vision or anything like that at all. That's not what it is. It's a time for me to think. Time for me to recall to my mind the truth of who Christ is. And if I'm a Christian, what he's done for me. So often those lights dim and we're like, oh, sweet. It's a time to zone out. 
That's not what it's for. It's not a time to check your text messages. It's not a time to order lunch. It's not what it's, it's for. It's a moment to make yourself intentionally think about Jesus, his life and death, his sacrifice for you, what that bread and juice represent, his body and his blood, what he did so that I could have victory over death and sin because of what he's done. You have to say, brain, engage. Think about Jesus right here. Wake up. Don't go to screensaver mode because the lights are low. Go back to that moment where your forgiveness became real. Go back to that moment where Jesus' death made your salvation possible. That's what Jesus intends for us here. You can think about the crucifixion. That's what's what's happening at this original Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. That's where he's going next, to the garden and eventually to the cross. Jesus had this interaction with his disciples. I'm about to give my body and my blood for your sin, and you need to remember that. Do this, practice this, so you remember my body and my blood for you. Don't forget. Think about that during communion. Jesus lived that sinless life and he, he died that death on the cross that I should have died. Communion is a time to remember. That's Jesus' intention. Time for you to think and be overwhelmed and to worship and to praise your Savior for what he's done. That's what we're meant to do. And what does Jesus intend for us? Well, notice... Jesus doesn't really say much about how often. There's no mention of schedule here or how regularly we should observe communion. At our church, we do once a month. Once a month, we have communion. We're trying to observe this command by Christ and to do it in a way that's most beneficial. What we believe will be most beneficial for those who are following Christ. A month seems regularly enough for us to be doing that without too much time in between, but also not too close where it would maybe jeopardize a little bit of, I don't know, just familiarity. We do, if we were to do it week after week after week, there's a chance that that might become so commonplace and so just tradition that it begins to lose what Jesus intends for it to be. All of a sudden now we're a little bit bored with the gospel, bored with what Christ has done because we're doing that week after week. It doesn't mean that if a church is practicing that, that it would be wrong. Again, we're just doing what we believe would be most helpful for those who are following Christ. So we decided to set that up every month. Every four weeks is about how long you should go without thinking about what Christ has done for us. Best practice. That's, that's what we're after. Again, never want to be bored with Christ or, or his gospel, never callous to what Jesus has done. And so we want to prevent that from happening for you. So we want to practice this the way Jesus intended. It's for Christians. It's for Christians. It's to involve this bread and this juice. It's to be serious 
It's not a, a time to show your buddy, you know, your new favorite GIF or whatever. It's a, it's a time also to engage this, the brain. I need to do, I need to remember and think about what Christ has done. And we want to practice it regularly enough to be most helpful. Okay, what else do we learn about communion here? Another thing to note, and I believe it's really, really helpful and really, really interesting. Number three, communion is a uniquely special moment with our Savior. Like Roman Catholicism, uh, we do not believe that that bread and that cup are the actual representation of of Christ. We're not to, we don't believe that's to be taken literally. I read that to you out of our church statement on communion. The bread and wine are not the actual body and blood of Christ, but they represent him. And we want to be mindful that he is in a, a greater sense present with us when we take communion. Where do I get that from? This special something in communion. Well, just back one chapter, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 16. There Paul writes, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. We all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar. And I know that there's a lot there and I wish we had a little more time to break that down. But let me just say this. We're participating in his death. This is what Paul's getting at. A a partnership with Christ in his body and his blood. And because of that participation, we greatly benefit. There is a huge benefit for us. We get to commune with the risen Christ. What does participating in the altar mean? It means when you eat that little cracker and drink that little cup of juice, that through faith, you get to love and rejoice. You get to receive and enjoy and praise and worship God because of what happened on that altar on that cross, his sacrifice, what he was doing to pay for that sin, we get to participate in that with Christ. Sins forgiven and and relationship with God restored. Those are the blessings that Christ has in mind. Those are the blessings that he's brought into your life. That's the whole point. So many realities. There's just so many to think about in that moment as I have this reminder and this uniquely special moment with Christ, thinking about what he's done for me and all the benefits, not just salvation, but so many more. Things that he's brought into my life because of this new creation that he's made me. I get to be set free from this horrible master called sin. Doesn't mean I'm going to be perfect. It's not about sinlessness, but I get to be set free from that. No longer just dead to my sin, doing sin all the time. No, you're set free from that. And to know that I I have peace with God where there was once no peace. Peace. 
to know that even as the world is getting crazier by the day, I can rest and I can sleep well knowing that, that God's in control. It doesn't come outside of a relationship with him. Knowing that I don't have to worry about the events of tomorrow. That, that, that God has it, that he's in control. I get to have a faith that grows. I get to read his word and, and actually understand it and begin to see my life resemble his. And again, not perfection, but I'm living in, in righteousness a little bit more than the way we used to live, living in those actions that were only leading to death. It's, it's amazing to see all those benefits, confident that I belong to the family of God. Benefit after benefit. So much good has come into your life because of the gospel. Again, that's what you're participating in in that moment. That's what you're reminded of. That's what's being stirred up again as you think about what Christ has done. And I know that's a lot to think about. You don't have to hit all of those, but could you focus on one of them? Could you, could you think about you know, one of those? Praise God for what he's done. So, even for a Christian who's 12 or 13, I want you to know that communion is such a special and unique time for you and your Savior. It's not a time to dip out early. It's not 10 minutes that you can gain to beat everyone out of the parking lot. It's a, it's a unique time that Christ intends for you to enjoy. Number four, communion. That's our last one. Communion is a time to examine your heart. Communion is a time to examine your heart. Paul then moves to a necessary warning, not only for the Corinthians, but also for us. When communion hits, don't be callous. Don't be careless. Don't approach this 15 minutes lightly needs to be taken very seriously. We've already said that, but look at verse 28. This is a time to examine yourself, a time to confess sin, to ask God to search your heart and your life for any sin that needs to be confessed. You're asking God to help you make sure that there isn't something in your life that's going to, I don't know, have you observing this in, in a way that's not pleasing to God. Ask God to search your life to make sure that you're going to take communion in the right way. But I want to come before you again, just clinging to your righteousness and not my own. That's kind of the whole point here too. We're not in an unworthy way, but worthy only because of Christ. So if you're living in secret sin or maybe open sin, this is the moment to, as a believer, as a Christian, to say, Lord, please, please forgive me for that. I'm under conviction of that, and I, I want to be right before you as I remember what you've done in, in my life, as I, as I think on the sacrifice that you made to pay for that sin. Lord, thank you that your promises hold true, that I can confess that sin to you and know that you'll forgive me and know that, that you'll make me clean again. A good reminder that I am <laughs> sinful, a good reminder that I'm only righteous because of you. That's a helpful thought as we approach the Lord's table. It's a time to repent and ask forgiveness and confess sin and make sure that you're not hoping in you, but hoping in Jesus. 
Now you see why doing this every month is pretty important. Because we go too long and those might not be reality for us anymore. Again, don't come to this table, this ordinance carelessly. So this is communion. That's fast and furious, but you get a good sample of it. This is what it is. It's for Christians. It's really important. It's not, it's not for you if you're not a Christian. It should be done the way that Christ expects. Uniquely special moment for us believers with, with God, and it's a time to examine your life. So I'll ask the same question I did two weeks ago. Should you take communion? Should you take it? Well, I hope you already have your answer, but if not, I think that same grid is helpful. If you're not sure, that's okay, but you need to figure out why. It's a good time to talk to your parents. It's a good time to talk to your, maybe your small group leader or, or to me why you're not sure. But if you believe you've put your trust in the gospel for salvation, if you genuinely believe that this would be true of you, that as you go to that special moment, that you can say, Lord, you, you, you gave your body for me and you shed your blood for me. And I put my faith in that, my trust in that for salvation. Then communion is for you. Communion is for you. And I just want to say this, not, not taking communion, and listen, I'll close with this, not taking communion, it's always a tragedy. And I know you're like, well, Pastor Jay, you just said it's not for believers. Well, I mean, me not taking it, isn't that respectful? I, I get why you would think that. But it's also a tragedy. That every month that plate passes by you and you're okay with that. Every month that cup and that bread go by you and you're content. You know you're not a Christian and you're fine with that. It's always a tragedy. It's a reminder that you're so close to the gospel and yet you have not reached out to take it. Don't be okay with not taking communion. Again, if you're not sure if it's time, I understand that. Talk to your parents. Talk to one of your leaders. Talk to us. We want to help you understand it, but just know that, that not taking it is never, never a good thing. And if if you are taking communion, let me just say this. You should also want to be baptized. If you're okay to take communion and you don't think you're okay to be baptized, there's a serious breakdown somewhere. If you know you're a Christian, there's two really simple ways that you can begin to start bearing the fruit that God expects. They're not complicated. One of them you just do once. You get baptized. And that's fruit. And the other one is you obey Christ by taking communion, but doing it in the way that he wants you to. Bearing fruit. And let me just close again with that verse that Jesus, it's so helpful, John 15. Jesus says, My Father is glorified by this, 
that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. This is where, you, where it starts. Get baptized if you're saved. Take communion, but do it the right way. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for this morning. God, a helpful text that gives us insight into the way you expect us to observe this ordinance that you've left for us. Father, I pray that you would, God, use a passage like this to challenge us, not only for those who are Christians, but for those who aren't, or to be reminded of how great the gospel is and all the benefits that are there, so many. Or but to see that, that God, you call us to a life of obedience and, and fruitfulness. And I pray for these young people, God, that you would begin to help them obey, even today. If they have questions about baptism, I pray that we would get those answered. Lord, the next time communion comes around, that we would do it in the way that honors you. Father, thanks for your word and for your truth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.